a 64-year-old man with learning difficulties collapses and dies in Manchester in his front garden after the latest incident in a campaign of harassment by youths which had lasted for years. The police revealed that they had invested extraordinary resources in trying to protect him but it was to no avail and an investigation is ongoing. A father systematically abuses his two daughters over a 25 year period making them pregnant 18 times they gave birth to nine children wasn't spotted until 2008 an independent review finds that all the statutory authorities failed and they lined up this week to apologise in Parliament, a uh, select committee on health declares that social care is chronically underfunded, severely rationed, and that if politicians don't rectify this, they will betray current and future generations. And those are just some of the headlines from the last week. Uh, could have picked almost any week in the last 30 years perhaps and we would have had a similar set of stories stories which illustrate with painful particular situations the decay of families in this country and the rising burden that that places upon the nation at about the time I was born British government, British society more widely embarked upon a, a, a giant social experiment. They um, uh, decided to begin the progressive removal for, of the conventional family from the centre of British society and the centre of British social uh, policy. And it is an experiment that has never been tried before. Different cultures in different places and different eras have had different conventions about how families should function. But no nation has ever chosen to abandon any preferred convention and just give people complete freedom to choose what kind of, a social, arrange well, kind of social arrangements they have. Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs in his book uh, The Politics of Hope imagines Charles Dickens great social commentator of the 19th century being introduced to the 21st century and uh, Sachs suggests he would be astonished at much of the progress that has been made healthcare is massively improved, nourishment of people, roads and other infrastructure, housing, education, many things in the last 150 years have improved out of all recognition in our society. He would be hailed, says Sachs, by, by adults rejoicing in freedoms that, that, that um, Charles Dickens barely dreamed of 
But Dickens had a sharp eye. So Jonathan Sachs suggests that uh, after he's enjoyed seeing all of those things, he might well say this, that's all very wonderful, but what about the children? Children are the victims, you see, of most of the uh, problems that are associated with family breakdown today. They grow up into adults with significant problems often. When I started examining the issues surrounding the families in the UK for myself probably a couple of decades ago now, at that point there was a monumental battle going on amongst uh, researchers, academics who proclaimed that, that, that families and children were being hurt by family breakdown were widely uh, vilified. Some of them lost their jobs. A, a, a rather aggressive and slightly bad-tempered book called uh, All Must Have Prizes by Melanie Phillips um, uh, pointed out that reality. But time has moved on, actually. Today, frankly, the evidence is overwhelming and no one can resist it. Despite, of course, you know, thousands upon thousands of examples of superb parents, single parents, um, uh, parents dealing with uh, uh, um, difficult family situations, kids of enormous resilience who grow up in broken homes and yet, nevertheless, manage to thrive and succeed. The evidence is, is overwhelming that an average child who grows up without both of their biological parents does worse educationally, has worse, worse health, is more likely to go prison, to prison, is less likely to form stable relationships themselves, girls are more likely to become pregnant than teenagers, they're more likely to abuse drugs, and so on and on the list goes. Now, let me say again, there, 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 are, uh, there will be amongst us even people who, who buck that trend, who grew up perhaps in a less than ideal home, but have done fine. Some who are presently doing magnificently in difficult family circumstances. When I stand up and talk about issues like, like this, I know why the politicians, by and large, avoid it and tend to fudge and avoid the key issues because these matters touch raw nerves for many of us and I'm sorry if the things that I say do today. I remember um, when I was chair of governors at our children's primary school um, we decided to abandon Father's Day. Mother's Day wasn't so bad but Father's Day caused so much anger amongst the kids that the school decided not to acknowledge it. This degree of tension and, 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 and anger that is floating around associated with families is palpable sometimes in our society. 
So with apologies that this perhaps tramples on feelings, I don't think we can avoid looking at this as we think about issues of the family in our nation today. What I want to say to you, though, is perhaps something slightly different from what you expect me to say. Um, I think there is a wider problem in society than just problems within families themselves. And though I could have talked just about uh, families and we could have uh, spent plenty of time there, I want to, this morning, try and open your eyes to this wider problem. The wider problem is this. The wider problem is that actually the way that our society functions now, um, as some people describe it, it, it is just a sea of individuals making their own private choices, living as individuals in, 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 uh, in, in loose or almost non-existent structures, not just families, and, a, and, and a, a, an enormous state trying to provide for those individuals and at times trying to discipline and control those individuals. I actually chose the illustrations at the beginning to illustrate that. The man who um, uh, died in his front garden having been harassed by youths, it was the police, of course, who were at the centre of the focus of what went wrong. What happened to the neighbours? The man who abused his, uh, his children he successfully disengaged himself from any sort of local society by moving, the investigation said, 67 times in 25 years to make sure no one spotted what he was doing. The, um, uh, the Health Select Committee um, complained in their report this week that social care had only risen by... 50% in real terms in the last decade. It had risen by 50% in real terms. And they said it's still not enough. How much money are we going to have to throw at these issues? Or are we living in a situation where a state simply cannot do what we expect it to do in terms of caring for those individuals? I can illustrate what's happened in the last hundred years or so in this way. We have in society individuals, there's a little person, and individuals have what I'm going to call circles of belonging. Uh, and in the modern society, they, we live in a family, Blue circle there, but today it's a very, very small circle. It's mum and dad and a couple of siblings, if you're lucky. And very often it's less than that. There are people who are completely detached from family. There is little hope of the family giving you all the support and nourishment that you need. Beyond that, 
there are what um, people call mediating institutions, mediating between the state and the individual or sometimes the, 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 the family. They are sort of middle-sized, a middle-sized circles of belonging that we have um, in, our, uh, in our modern society, for instance. That could include the football club or if you're a Muslim, the mosque. And for Christians, the church fits into that, 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 uh, that category. And those institutions, uh, probably even more than the family, have almost disappeared in British life uh, today. A man called Robert Putnam um, uh, has written a number of things um, about that in America, um, talking about the loss of what they call social capital. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone, where he showed actually the number of people bowling in the United States has increased. But actually, the bowling leagues, where people meet together and have competitions and all the fun that's associated with that, have almost disappeared. People are bowling alone. They don't belong to these middle-sized organisations. They don't belong to neighbourhood organisations. They don't belong to, to, to sporting clubs any longer. And, uh, and on the list goes. So those groups can't provide the, the, uh, the nourishment and the guidance and sometimes the discipline that once they did. Of course, neighbourhoods are, are a central part of that. On Argyle Street, there is actually a very strong neighbourhood. We had, for instance, a few years ago, a um, very rowdy house. It was students, I have to say. And um, four of the largest men in the street knocked on the door at 10 o'clock in the evening excuse me, but we've all got families and we'd quite like to sleep. Could you control the noise, please? And uh, they did much better than any noise abatement officer can ever do. In a polite, healthy, sensible way, a situation was sorted out by a local community. But that is rare. And then we have uh, an enormous state, certainly compared with what it was like a hundred or so years ago. A hundred years ago, the standard rate of income tax was 6%. Now, 39% of GDP goes in tax to be spent by the government. Now, let me compare that actually with what the Old Testament society was like, just briefly. Old Testament society, of course, had its individuals, but had much bigger, stronger family structures built into the ideal of Israelite society. The fifth commandment, honour your father and mother, became the epitome, in fact, of a, of a, of a much bigger um, honouring set of relationships that you had with father and mother and uncles and aunts and, and so on. Um, marriage was honoured and controlled. There were the clear laws about, um, against adultery and controlling divorce. 
Um, the family was, was not a nuclear family particularly, it was often referred to as the father's house. It was the, uh, the family unit was the descendants of the oldest living man. That's, that would be a, how big the family was. And uh, beyond actually this, this much richer and um, larger family, there were very strong what um, these people like to call mediating institutions. You belong to a clan in Israel, a wider group that helped sort out disputes within and between families very, uh, very much. But beyond the, tr- the clan, you have the tribal group in Israel, the main subdivision of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, who had strong extended family identity. And uh, beyond that, there was uh, a very small state, the nation with the the king at at the heart, was important, but in terms of day-to-day life, was far less important than the state today. Now, of course, that could be just an accident, couldn't it? Old societies work like this, modern societies work with a big state. I want to say to you, I want to give you three reasons why I believe it's not an accident, but it is actually in the wisdom of God, that kind of structure. First of all, the Old Testament state state is explicitly set up in opposition to the states around that did have a much bigger state. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8 and I can explain it to you on, in, on page 278. Up to now, Israel has been led in a relatively informal way with a, a major emphasis on them. Uh, on, on, on local institutions and so on, and with just a, a, a judge or, or, or um, a, a prophet at the uh, centre um, leading Israel and giving uh, judgments and so on. But the people say to uh, um, uh, Samuel, you are old, chapter 8 verse 5, you do, uh, your sons don't walk in your ways, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. Let's have a king, let's have a proper leadership, let's, let, let's get a strong state going that can deal with our, with our problems. And uh, uh, in verses 11 to 18, Samuel, speaking from the Lord, explains to them the problems with having a king and a big state. This is what the king, verse 11, who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will sign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his charities. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, the men servants and maid servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become slaves. And when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the kings you have chosen. 
Um, he says, there will be a centralised bureaucracy, a standing, including a standing army. There will be centralised wealth so that he gets very rich and those around him and other people are reduced to slaves or serfs. There will be prohibitive taxation to, to, to maintain all this complicated structure of state. And Israel avoided it, or, or, or at least the advice to Israel was that they should avoid it. God gives them a king, ultimately. He will work within um, uh, the people's desires. But the dangers of kingship remain a theme in the Old Testament. The dangers of a centralised state. So, Israel is set up explicitly in opposition to early centralised states that were around them. The second reason why, I don't think it's an accident that the Old Testament sets out this pattern, is that actually increasingly political thinkers are recognising the health of this pattern today. From both left and right wings. Because let, let me say, currently both the, the left wing thinkers and the right wing thinkers, the main, uh, the, the main parties at the moment, they both uh, are, are supporting a very small family circle and a very small set of mediating institutions. The more right-wing say, well, the state ought to be small, relatively small as well. And the more left-wing ones say, well, the state ought to be enormous to be able to provide for all our needs. But they don't actually say anything particularly different about how families and other local institutions should be governed. So I'm not actually making a party political comment here. But in both and left and right, there are an increasing number of people who are speaking about the desperate need our society has for mediating institutions, for social capital, as some of them put it. There's a whole movement... Um, called communitarianism which uh, very much is pushing this as the big need for Western societies led, interestingly, by some Jews who recognise the wisdom of, old, of the Old Testament. But here's my third reason. The New Testament actually talks about just the same circles of belonging. That's what I want to spend a few minutes on. It's all very well to see it in the Old Testament. But does the New Testament teach us the same? Yes, it does. And the pattern that the New Testament gives for us as to how to live is a model for the world how to live. So let me show you the New Testament pattern for how to live so that perhaps you'll have a deeper and richer vision of how we can engage in the wider world and the things we can call for in the wider world. The New Testament sets, just as the Old Testament does, the family and marriage right at the heart of its intentions. 
Husbands and wives get 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 central focus when it is coming when it is talking about the the, um, uh, the healthy structures for society. We saw that in Ephesians that I just read. But let me take you to Matthew chapter 19 because uh, uh, there are some important insights. It's on page 986 in church Bibles. There are some important insights here which have a wider implication for the world. Jesus is um, asked about divorce. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And uh, his answer is very interesting. The first thing that he does is not address himself to the any and every reason question, but to set out what God's first intention was. Verse verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together let man not separate. And then, having having told them what God's ideal was, he explains to them why there was legislation which permitted divorce in the Old Testament, because they point that out. Why then, they said, did Moses command a man that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? It was hardly commanding that people should divorce one another. They are distorting what the Old Testament says. But it does say that divorce can happen and Jesus explains. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not that this way from the beginning. So there is a recognition, says Jesus, in practical legislation for people who are hard-hearted that we may permit things which are not ideal. But it is not in order to advocate things that are not ideal, it is to regulate and limit the worst effects of those problems. Now, that in germ gives us some sort of um, uh, insight into how we need to be advocating positive family policy in our nation. We need to be um, uh, saying... God's intention is for a man and a woman to covenant together for life in faithfulness and raise children in that, in that context. Christians need to be unabashed about that as God's priority and God's central focus and uh, I would say government policy needs to give up on the political correct statements that are made all the time and simply recognise that, that all things being equal, that is the best and healthiest way to raise kids. I, I get tired, I, you know I wrote an email out to the, the, can, the local candidates, most of whom haven't responded, which is why... I've not told you in detail what they've said back, but, uh, but both Labour and Liberal Democrat did respond and they both used this tired phrase, our policy is to support families of all kinds. 
And by all means, I think that's really important. I think there are people who are struggling who, who really need support in, in, in different family situations. But if there is no way that as a nation we encourage and foster stable family relationships for kids to be, uh, to be raised in, then you will just have a rising tide of problems with, with a government increasingly desperately trying to, to support and compensate for those problems and we simply will not be able to afford it. Somehow, we need to have policies, we need to reverse the trends so that a higher proportion of young people are raised in stable, healthy family environments. And simply saying, we will support all kinds of families, will not do that. I, I, I do not have a simple answer of how we can. But I do want you to alert, to alert you to that. It is a policy which will result, which is resulting in disaster. One group, the Centre for Social Justice, which was founded by the Tory, Ian Duncan Smith, is speaking straight about these issues. And though I'm in this series, I'm avoiding being overly party, party political. And it is unclear whether the Tories as a whole are going to take seriously some of these um, now unavoidable facts about family problems. I would recommend that and their report that they've just produced recently, a green paper, to, to do some reading if you want to. And of course, we can make a difference ourselves. We can support marriages of friends that we know. We can make sure that we have the best marriages that there could possibly be. And I hope James and Emily Gregg won't mind me um, saying that they're, they're going to run the marriage course in Marston in the next few months for local people. What a great thing to do. To support and encourage marriages. Of course, we must, with the Old Testament, with Jesus, recognise there is hardness of heart there, uh, uh, out there and simple blanket don'ts don't work. We have to find ways of, of managing a less than ideal situations where people's hearts are hard. But if families don't change, we are in trouble as a society. The family is not just about husbands and wives, it's about um, parents and children. There's a mutual responsibility there, you saw that in the reading in Ephesians 6. Um, fathers, don't exasperate your children, children obey your parents. And interestingly and importantly, it is also about extended family as far as the New Testament is, is concerned. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 5, just to, um, to get that into your, into your minds. 
it's discussing the church caring for widows. Um, and um, verse 16 says, in 1 Timothy 5, page 1193, if any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. In other words, it's expected that people will have a first priority over church priority, a first priority in looking after their own family. We'll talk about church in a minute, but right now, and that's extended family, that's grandparents. And indeed, in verse uh, uh, 8, Paul says something pretty strong. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and he means grandparents here, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The idea of a nuclear family being the only sphere where we have responsibility as Christians is completely alien to scripture. We have responsibilities, responsibilities that seem to supersede in certain key ways our, our responsibility to local church for extent towards our extended family. Um, Christians need to honour that. Yeah. I think one really good reason for not being here on a Sunday is because you're going to see parents or grandparents. Um, frankly, I think there are a lot of poor reasons why people don't bother to be involved in church. But that one's a good one. And in public policy, um, what about recognising grandparents involved in childcare? What about financial incentives to enable elderly grandparents to be cared for by their own families? Um, one organisation that has looked a lot at the, some of these relational issues is the Relationships Foundation and there's a link to it on the handout. So we have then a vitally important and significant and large circle of belonging, circle of responsibility, which is our extended family. We must live like that. A healthy society lives like that. But then, of course, Christians have this other circle, bigger than immediate family, called the church. Look um, at Ephesians chapter 2 with me, for instance, for a description of the nature of the church. 1174. Consequently, Paul says, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God's spirit, God lives by his spirit. The church is a vitally important institution in the New Testament. There are all sorts of images used for it. Family, household is one of them. Building is another one. Um, temple specifically is, uh, is another one that, it, that is used here. 
Now, is that just incidental? Is that just because churches, it's quite good for them to gather together and be taught and to sing together uh, sometimes? Or because churches are quite good at doing evangelism and so they can get out there and uh, and spread the gospel? I want to say to you, no, it is not incidental. Human beings were made to live in communities like this. Get that? You were made to live in a broad, rich, diverse, supra-family group. That is how human beings have always thrived. And the church is one of the last institutions in this country that functions like this. It is a blight on a hill now in a very dark world when it comes to institutions and and groups of this size. I remember remember meeting a a community psychologist who was dealing with with, uh, people with mental problems in in the community and I said, I'm a pastor. She immediately said, wow, that's wonderful, she said. She said, the reason why is because when I'm dealing with the community, I know that a major factor in the prognosis of someone with a mental illness is whether they belong to a faith group. Because, she said, my job, community psychologist, is a misnomer. There is no community. But people who belong to a faith group have one. Do not underestimate the fundamental human value of belonging to a group like this. I know some of you think it's just a place to come, perhaps where you'll get some teaching and, and, a, and a bit of encouragement, but, but fundamentally, to be honest, an awful lot of us live as our society expects us to live, as just freewheeling individuals who dip in and out of things, but fundamentally we float free as individuals. If that is you, you are living a profoundly unhealthy, sub-biblical life. You were made to belong, to, to link with people, to commit to people, to connect with people. Not just as a matter of narrow convenience, but as a fundamental aspect of what it means to live as a human being. From beginning to end, the Bible puts us in those communities for a profoundly important reason. We have church membership here to to recognise that. Because it is so important. And though I would love everybody in this country to belong to a church, of course they won't always, but they won't all belong in that way, but They are still human beings and they still need those local communities. And and this big call that I want to, to give to you today in terms of our concern for the wider country is people need local mediating institutions. And God's church can lead the way. Bible endorses the state. Very, very important. We looked at that uh, over this series and I'm not going to go 
uh, for it again. It has an important role to do you good, says Romans 13. But the Bible says the main good you will find is by associating together locally. Local residence associations that get together and decide what they want to do for their local communities. Local sports clubs even. Good and healthy for people. But churches can lead the way as well by helping people at a local level. As you've heard me say before, in many ways the government is explicitly trying to push faith groups out of that role because of the unrealistic expectations they are putting on church groups particularly to conform to their ideas about how we should behave. Churches can never do that. We must hold to our distinctive vision for life in all sorts of ways. And it will be a tragic loss to our nation if churches were pushed aside. So if you want to be a New Testament believer, belong. Belong to your family. Judy and I had a gathering of her side of the family yesterday. Just for the fun of having 25 members of the family come. It was great. You will find, as Christians, you become the person who says, let's get together. Belong. Belong to your church and maybe some other local organisations as well. Commit yourself in that way. And people will see Christ and good will be done to our society and people finally will come and worship the living God who orders human life with such wisdom it cannot help to shine. You are a city on a hill, said Jesus. People who gather together and illuminate the world.